As we begin a, a new year together, a new decade um, together, uh, I don't know about you, but 2020 hasn't exactly been great in the Watson household, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later, even though we're only a few days uh, into things. But it's easy to allow our plans and our agendas and our words to define our year and to define ourselves even. And so what we want to do beginning this new year together is let's begin this new year with God being the one who defines us. Let's begin this new year with God's word being what defines who we are. And let's take a look this morning at Psalm 8 and see God's majesty in all that he does. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. Uh, If you have a copy of the scriptures with you this morning, if you would turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. It's the the first page uh, in your Bible past uh, the preface and all the introduction stuff and the the books of the Bible and everything. We're going to start right at the beginning. And as you're turning there, we've also got snippets of it there in your... um, in your bulletin for you, but we'll actually be, be looking at all of chapters uh, 1 and 2 uh, together. Uh, but as you're turning there, I want to give a little bit of introduction, kind of set the table uh, for, for the year um, here at Christ Press. So the introduction I'm about to give is, is going to be a little bit longer than what, I would, what we would normally do, but I want to kind of set the stage for us for what we're thinking about together uh, in the year 2020 here at Christ Press. Um, and if you remember, a few weeks ago, Dave mentioned that, that we're going to go through the whole Bible together in this year. Um, and uh, so we're going to look at Genesis all the way to Revelation. We're going to look at snippets of the story of Scripture through the whole Bible together this year. And part of the reason that we want to do that is we want to, as a community, go through and learn more and more in depth about the biblical narrative, the story, the one story that we see throughout all of Scripture. And you can split that story up into into sort of four basic acts, if you will. Creation, rebellion, redemption, and restoration. And so those are ideas and themes that we will continue to come back to uh, throughout the year. God's goodness in creation. His love towards us, his power by his word, our rebellion against him, our sin and our brokenness, and God's pursuit of a wayward and broken people to come and to rescue and to redeem us in Jesus and to ultimately make all things new and to restore what has gone bad and has been broken. And what's true is, is that God's story, this story that we're going to go through together this year, is actually God's vision for our lives. And it's, it's God's vision for our church. 
And what we want to do is we want to get caught up together in that reality. And God's vision for our lives and his vision for our church can be expressed in this way. And I'm sure that you've heard this before. Is that God's vision for our lives is to love God, to love people, and to love the place where he has put us. And we're going to see that throughout the whole of the Bible. That that's what God's vision, God's vision is for our lives, to love him, to love each other, and to love the place where he's put us. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to start at the beginning. At the beginning of the story, at creation, and take a sort of 30,000-foot view, if you will, of Genesis 1 and 2 and God's acts in creation and what that means uh, for us. But if I can also carve out a little bit more uh, before we get in there, hang in there with me. Might need another break after this. Um, what we want you to know is that as a church, what we're going to read together in Genesis 1 and 2, we believe is they're actual historical events. That the things that we're going to read about, like they really actually happened, they're true. Um, we believe that the author of the book of Genesis, a guy named Moses, um, was given God's word to record for the Exodus community most acutely, but also for us as well too, so that we would know how our world came into existence, so that we would know how our world was made by God who spoke it into existence. We, have, we feel like we have good reasons to believe that. Because of the literature itself in Genesis 1 and 2, the historical narrative is consistent with how ancient Near Eastern documents record historical narrative. So Moses wrote this in a way that is consistent with being an actual historical uh, document, and we, we believe that. Which means we believe that Adam and Eve were actual real people. We believe that Adam and Eve were the first parents of all of humanity. We believe that God actually spoke and things came into existence. Where there was nothing, God spoke and then things uh, began to happen and come into uh, existence. Um, we also believe that this narrative actually makes the most sense of the world that we live in. Uh, we believe that creation uh, makes sense of why we are attracted to the beauty of creation, of, of why we are attracted to wanting relationships that are true and whole, of, uh, of why we look at the world and we at times become overwhelmed. We believe that it makes the most sense of the world um, that we live in. But there's one main point to take away from all of this, and that's this. Genesis 1 and 2 tell us a story of God is the one true creator of everything, and he acts in and orchestrates all of history. All of history. That being said, we're not going to be able to get at everything today. It is 30,000 feet, so I'm not going to be able to get into necessarily like well, what did the days of creation look like? And how long was that? And all of that and everything. But I want you to know, if that's something that you're interested in talking more about, I would love to talk to you more about that. would love to grab coffee with you. would love to, to, to grab a meal um, with you. But, all right, there it is, okay? 
There's the introduction. Now what I want us to do is I want us to dig into this beautiful passage that explains to us how God made everything and it was very good. I'm going to read snippets from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, but I'll walk us through this. This is God's word for us. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Down to verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Skip down to chapter 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And back up to Genesis 1. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Let's pray together and ask God to help us understand his word. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open our hearts and our ears to your goodness this morning, that we would see that you made everything and that you called it good, and that that means something for us. We pray that we would also see that the world that we are reading about is a one that seems foreign to us, and the reason is because we are broken and a sinful people. But you have not left us, you sent your one and only Son. Jesus to give his life for us. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would make Jesus beautiful and believable to us this morning. That you would show us our sin and our need for our Savior. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I want to begin this morning by asking you a question. And I actually want you to interact with this question. So I want you to feel free to say something out loud, okay? Like I'm not trying to trick you here. Okay, but here's the question that I want us to think about together uh, as we dig into Genesis 1 and 2. 
and, and just shout it out. It's fine. Um, what is the most magical place that you have ever been? Disney World. They literally call it the, the magical kingdom, right? Like they literally call it that. They know what they're doing, right? Yeah? What else? Croatia. Why? Uh-huh. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Where else? What's that? I didn't. I still didn't hear that, Trey. Bouchard Gardens. Where's that? In Canada, in Vancouver, huh? Victoria Island. It's beautiful out there, isn't it? Yeah. The Grand Canyon. I just, I just finished watching a documentary on the Grand Canyon this past week. It does look incredible. I've never in my life wanted to go to Arizona, but now after watching that, I'm like, yeah, I could do that. Yeah. Allen Fieldhouse. Frank? Cameron Indoor? <laughs> Max? <laughs> Don't want to talk about it. <laughs> we all like here's the thing is like we all have these we all have these things in our lives that that we can like I ask that question and everybody can think of something right like there is something um that we can think of as that is a magical place there's a place that we've been and we've thought to ourselves man I'm not the only one here like there's something bigger than just me than just uh than just myself and more and more often than not that's not just related to the place itself but there's things that go along that, like relationships that we might have that are representative of some of that stuff as well, too. Like, one of my places is Fenway Park. And I think Fenway Park is beautiful, but there's something inextricably connected to that for me with my relationship with my dad and with my grandfather as, as well, too. We all have these magical places, these places where we have felt to ourselves, man, something is right about this. Something is good about this. And what I want us to do this morning is I want to take us to the most magical of all places, to creation. And truthfully, it's a place that none of us have ever been because it's a world without sin and without brokenness. And there's only God's goodness that is there. And so we begin in chapter 1 uh, of Genesis. In the first two verses of chapter 1, what we see is that there is a God who exists outside of time and space as we know it. That he is the one who actually speaks beginning into existence. That he is the one who speaks into existence time and space as we know it. He is a creator God, and he makes the heavens and he makes the earth. And it tells us that it is without form, and it is, it is void, but it's there. And God's spirit is hovering over the face of the deep. It's, it's almost this picture as like a potter sitting at a potter's wheel with a big lump of clay. And we think, well, there's nothing really there to that. Or, or an artist who has some paint and some canvas uh, in, in front of them. And what's happening in Genesis uh, 1, verses 1 and 2, is that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what they're doing is they're planning the greatest masterpiece in all of history. And then we get to see them make 
things. Verses 3 through 5, God creates. And he does this by speaking. God's paintbrush is his word. He speaks and things come into existence. Light. And then he moves the light and he separates the heavens and the earth. And we have the end of the first day. And we skip down into verses 6 through 8. And we come to day 2 where the Father, Son, and Spirit are back at sculpting this creation that they are making. And there's firmament there, which means there's like a solid mass that is there. And God separates the solid mass by putting waters up above and waters down below the solid mass, shaping and forming things one day at a time. And the end of day two, when we move to verses 9 through 13, we come to day three where what God does is he separates water and dry land. And then he begins to name things, calls the dry land earth. And the water he calls seas. And then God starts growing things in this creation that he is making. We see plants. We see trees. We see that they have seeds so that they can perpetuate and reproduce and continue to grow and to fill the creation that God is making. And it tells us that there is each to its own kind, which means there's evergreens and there's oaks, there's orange bushes. There's lemon trees, there's apple trees, there's rosemary bushes, there's blueberries, tulips, all kinds of things, each its own kind. In the end of day three, and we move on through verses 14 through 19, we come to day four, where God places light throughout the heavens, and he separates day from night, and he begins to bring order Into this, we see process that is happening, and so that we have days, and then we'll have weeks, and we have months, and we even have seasons, it says, and years to keep track of the order that God is putting into His creation. And we see that the light shines on the earth in such a way that there's a greater light for day, and there's a lesser light that is for night. And that's the end of day four. Verses 20 through 23, we come to day five where God begins to make creatures that that breathe. Water creatures. Air creatures. And he begins to make them birds and fish. And in this, we see a new commandment that he gives his creation. He tells these birds, he tells these fish, be fruitful, multiply. Fill the seas, fill the airs, fill where I am putting you, grow, make more. And then we have the end of day five. Day six, verses 24 through 31. God makes creatures for earth. Livestock, beasts of the field, creeping, crawling things. I know some of you love those creeping, crawling things, right? And he makes all of this stuff... You see, what's happening in creation is that God is taking that which is formless and he's giving it form. He's taking chaos and he's bringing order. He's shaping and forming just as a sculptor would and filling that which he forms and bringing life to it. And all of this by the word of his power. He speaks and this happens. And then... In verses 26 through 31 of chapter 1, 
And in verses 4 through 25 of chapter 2, what creation does is it takes a very personal touch where we see the pinnacle of all of God's creation, man and woman. Humanity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, after making heaven and earth and filling it with everything that you and I see, they look at each other and they say, let's make something else. Let's make something that bears our image, that reflects us in this creation, that represents us in this creation. God the Father, Son, and Spirit had a conversation about making you and me. Can you imagine that? And they were looking at each other, and, they were, and, and, and I have to think that they're thinking to themselves, you know, the love that we have together as one God, it can't help but overflow into making something that bears our image, that represents, that represents and reflects us in this wonderful, good creation that we have made. And so God makes man, calls man Adam, And he says, let's give him someone who fits him. Because it's not good that he is alone. It's not good that he's alone. That's actually the only thing that is not good in creation. Is that humanity is alone. And so they do. And so they put Adam into a deep sleep. They take one of his ribs. They close it back up. And woman is made. Her name is Eve. And she too will be like God. And so, man and woman, Adam and Eve, bear God's image in his world. And together, man and woman will reflect and represent God in the world that he has made. That collectively, we make up God's image together. And in this reflection and in this representation, we get some snippets of exactly what that's supposed to look like. Because... God tells Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply, to make other little image bearers, to grow, to fill the earth, to continue to grow and to learn and grow, and also to steward, to exercise stewardship, to exercise uh, dominion over creation, which really means, at the end of the day, to take care of it, to care for it. That God wants us to care for the things that he has made. He wants us to work in such a way that we care about the place where we live. And what that means is that we're actually made for relationship. We're made for relationship with God, with each other, and where he has put us. His creation, what he has made. A way that you might think about this is that humanity is made to love God to love people, and to love the place where God has put us. That is God's vision for us, for humanity, for our lives, is to relate to him, to relate to each other, and to relate to that which he has made. And so let's dig in a little bit on what that means. What does relationship mean? Well, we actually get it really clearly in chapter 2. Uh, verse 25, where it says that Adam and Eve were together, they were naked, and they were not ashamed. Naked and not ashamed. Fully exposed, fully known. 
no fear. No desire to run and hide. Fully present with each other. Fully present with God. Only flourishing. Only goodness. No hesitation to want to run from each other or run from God at all. Not even in the the slightest. This is relationship in its fullest. No worries of whether or not we belong. No worries of whether or not they were loved. It's just there. It's absolutely there. There's zero notion whatsoever of having to earn relationship. There's zero notion whatsoever of having to earn belonging, of having to earn love. It just exists because God made everything and he called it good. And he made man and woman to flourish in relationship with him and with each other and also with the creation that God had made. And this is stewarding. This is work. And we see in Adam and Eve's work in the garden that there's only joy and delight. There's no doubt whatsoever of purpose. That they're totally fulfilled in their jobs as gardeners and keepers of Eden. Fully engaged. Putting their hands to work. Engaging with the creation that God has made reflecting the way that God has made them and formed and shaped and created them. Perfect obedience, not a chore. Came naturally, easily to Adam and to Eve. Blessing, easy to believe. Easy to live their lives by God said that it was very good. One pastor defined what work in the garden and what work today should look like for us. And I really like this definition. He said that work is a gracious expression of creative energy in service of others. A gracious expression of creative energy in service of others. Do we see like that's how Adam and Eve were made? To serve God, to serve each other, to even serve the place where God had put them. To express the creative energy with which they had been endowed to relate to one another and to relate to the place that God had put them. This world that God had made, all that he could say about it is in verse 31 of chapter 1. It was very good. A world in which there is zero fear in relationship. A world in which there is not a single doubt in your mind what you were made for. It's amazing. And it's a world that none of us have ever been. And none of us have ever known personally. And why is that? You know, why is that, that we read this this account that we have in Genesis 1 and 2, and there's part of us that's so drawn to it because it's so beautiful, and then there's part of us that wonders, is this really true? Like, did this really happen? Why? Because our world is so broken. And honestly, I I also think that that part of this is is that, or at least I grew up in this kind of church culture, if you will, 
that has really, really made a big deal about rebellion and, and brokenness and sin, and we should. But I didn't grow up really hearing about God's goodness in creation. God's word starts with, it was very good. We do well to start there. And that's why we get overwhelmed when we see these beautiful things. Why? Because God made it good. That's why we all want to be in the kinds of relationships where we can be vulnerable and received and accepted. Why? Because God made us that way. But we also know that that is marred as well too. One of the ways, one of the ways that we still in our culture get an opportunity to see kind of on display the kind of relationship that God describes here between Adam and Eve is if you go to a wedding. Um, and I got the opportunity to go to, to a wedding yesterday. And I love weddings. Carrie and I were talking about this. I don't think that there's a single one that I go through that I, I don't at some point cry. And I love officiating weddings, like being able to, to be involved in that in, in, in that intimate kind of, kind of way. I really enjoy that. But I tell you, I also really just love witnessing a wedding as well, too. And seeing two people stand up there and vow and commit to one another and see that when they say those words, they mean it as best as they can, you know? And it is absolutely beautiful. And there's a reason that, that weddings are a joyous occasion and, and, and celebration and everything. But I'll tell you what, it doesn't take too long until the wedding's over, does it? You get into that relationship and you realize we are, we are broken messes. Like Dave, well Dave actually said this in the wedding yesterday. He said, you know, what marriage teaches you actually is how selfish you are. And then having children teaches you how angry you are. <laughs> but it's not long after the wedding and after the honeymoon that we realize we are broken people. Well, the reason why is because it's true God made Adam and Eve in his image to be fruitful, to multiply, to steward over everything that he had made. And part of that was to live in a true and genuine relationship with him, which meant recognizing that he was the one who made them. They owed their existence to him. And so he had exclusive rights over them, and he had every right to ask them to trust him. And that's exactly what he did. He asked them to trust him, to fully trust him in his goodness, in his provision, and to express that by refraining from eating of a particular tree that was in the garden, the tree of good and evil. And he warned them that if they did, death and destruction was on its way, and it would come into God's good creation. And we're going to spend more time talking about that next week when we get to Genesis 3. But we can't, we can't talk about the gospel without talking about our sin, beloved. We have to. God made everything good, but Adam and Eve rebelled, and so do we. So do we. The reason that we don't know the world that I've described here in Genesis 1 and 2 is because we did not... Adam and Eve did not, and we do not often trust God's goodness. We do not often trust God's provision. We have a hard time trusting 
that God's vision for our lives is the best vision for our lives. We have a hard time trusting that God's vision to love him, to love each other, and to love the place where he has put us is actually what is best for us. We like our own agendas. We like our own plans. We have a hard time trusting God. We have rebelled. Adam and Eve rebelled, brought sin, death, and destruction into what God meant for good. And that is the way we will see sin played out throughout the rest of the scriptures, is that what God meant for good, we took and we distorted. But in Genesis 1 and 2, all we have is the good. We have a God who is good and who creates everything good. But we've broken it. And we're broken ourselves. And the effect of that is that the way that God made us is distorted. Stewardship, we have a distorted view of purpose. We have a distorted view of of work. We look at our vocations and our work as a means to personal accolades. Make sure that I get patted on my back, that I'm the one who gets noticed. Or we look at it as, as as a means and a way to have the most comfortable, catered life that we can possibly have. I mean, how often have you interviewed for a new job or a new job like comes across your plate and the thing that we can only think about is how does this benefit me? How can I best promote myself and my life and the life that I want out of this? Whether you're in medicine, whether you're in law, whether you're in business, whether you're in education, Whatever it is, we often look at our work as a way to make ourselves look great or to make our lives as comfortable and as catered and as managed as we possibly can. We have a hard time thinking that work is a gracious expression of creative energy in service of others. We have a hard time loving place. We have a hard time connecting together with our work and our lives. What does it mean for me to love God, to love people, and to love the place that he has put us? What does it mean for in my work to bring as as best as I can to bring glory to God in my vocation? We get far more concerned about making sure we get the glory. We get far more concerned about making sure that our lives look the way that we would like for them to look. We have a hard time relating to stewardship. And we have a hard time in relationships too, don't we? We do see very quick that we are a broken people. That it is a rare occasion to be exposed and not ashamed. To be loved and known fully and know that there's not going to be rejection there. There's going to be reception there. We run from God. We think we can hide from Him. We run from each other out of fear that we won't be received, that we won't belong, that we won't be loved, that we will be rejected. We have a tendency to treat relationships as if they're just kind of transactions. It's sort of a tit-for-tat kind of thing. I'll do this for you if you'll do this for me. 
And we can walk through our relationships in our lives in such a way so that it would free us up to do what we want to do, to figure out what we want to do. We have a hard time listening to God's voice. We have a hard time loving Him. We struggle to commit ourselves and our lives to God. We struggle to commit ourselves to each other. We struggle to love people more than we love ourselves. We're broken. We're bent. And we all have these longings of wanting to be known and loved, of wanting to be naked and not ashamed, fully exposed and fully loved. But we also know that we grasp for that. And it's because of our own sin and it's because of the brokenness of the world that we inhabit. I mentioned at the beginning of the service that 2020 hasn't exactly been a great year start for the Watson clan. And it it started on January the 1st at about 9.30 a.m., And our littlest one, Janie, she came running into the living room where we were kind of like lounging, trying to take it, trying to take it easy, take it slow. And she came in, she came bebopping in, and she said, I'm sorry, I let Hagrid out the front door, you know, and she looks at you with those eyes and you're like, I'm a sucker, I know I am. And and we were like, Jane, that's not funny. Like, you know you're not supposed to open the front door, da da da. She was like, I did, I let him out the front door. And so then the panic like sets in because if you've ever met my dog Hagrid, that Joker's a runner. Like he is, he's bolting. Like that's what he's gonna do. And so Carrie and I run out in the front yard, and we can see he's out there, and he's he's start he's starting to run. And uh, I run after him. Carrie goes back in the house to get the keys to the car because this ain't our first rodeo, and we know that we're going to end up having to, to you know, like track him down by, by driving around. But I'm in pajamas. I'm barefoot. I'm running around my neighborhood trying to catch this dog and everything. And, and, and thankfully, there are a couple of sweet women in our, in our neighborhood that, that join the chase with me. And they, too, get in their cars. And it dawns on me at one point that he's running straight for Greenville Boulevard. And if he gets out there, there's no shot. Like, I know, I know it. And so for the next hour, myself and these two sweet women in our neighborhood drive around the neighborhood trying to catch him. They're driving up ahead of him at times to beep their horn at him to try and drive him back to the center of the neighborhood so that he doesn't go out to Greenville Boulevard. He almost got hit by two cars in the neighborhood, and there were three separate occasions that he was bolting right for Greenville Boulevard, and these sweet women saved my dog's lives, and my dog, and and he came back in, and, and finally, the only thing I was able to catch him, the only thing that caught up with him were his bowels, and he had to stop, and so, so that was how I was able to get him, and, and one of the ladies that had been helping me, she just gave me a big old hug, and, um, and I came home, and, and Carrie knows me really, really well. She made sure to separate the kids and put them in a different part of the house, and the first thing she told me, she said, you need to go take a shower. Like, you just need to, like, you need to, you need to, I know, I know. But, you know, in hindsight, though, the more I think about that, the more I realize that I'm actually a lot like Hagrid. 
who I spent a lot of time calling out to him. Let him know that he needed to come home. They needed to hear my voice. He needed to obey my voice. And I'm a lot like Hagrid because I run headlong into what I want. It's not very often that I want to hear God's voice. I don't listen to God's voice much. I don't trust. I don't believe that he has my best in mind. I go tromping through the yards of people's lives only thinking about what benefits me. Ignoring the fact that I am running into my demise. Oblivious to my own destruction and the potential wake that that carries with it. If I'm honest with myself and I, and I really get down to the brass tacks, I have a hard time trusting God. I have a hard time trusting his vision for my life. I have a hard time believing that what God ultimately wants each and every one of us to do is to strive to love him, to love each other, and to love the place that he's put us, and to work that out through the entirety of our lives. I am so dependent on self and so interested in what I want to do and what my vision is. How about you? How do you run from God? Where in your life is God's voice not welcome? Is God for you just the best way to kind of like manage and curate and, and, and control your life? To get it to the spot where you want it, where it's the most comfortable? Do you compartmentalize your life from God? You say, well, God, you can, you, you can belong here, but you can't belong here. Like... You can, you can belong in, 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 my, in my marriage, but you're not allowed to belong in my work. Do we compartmentalize our lives from God? Do we compartmentalize our relationships from God? Where do you run from God? You know, as I was chasing down my dog, my feet were raw. Like I'd run on pavement. And they were literally raw and bleeding. There were numerous times that I thought I had him, and he bolted, and I dove after him and couldn't catch him. I bruised some ribs. I jacked up my arm, at least for a day. My knees and my shins were bloodied. I was winded. I was hurt pursuing this dog that wanted nothing to do with me. But you know what? The best that I could do, the best that I could have done was to keep him from dying. That's the best that I could have done. But what's true is that Jesus saw us in our sin and our rebellion, running headlong in the traffic on Greenville Boulevard, and he saw us get hit and killed, and he went and he laid down his life on top of ours, and he brought us back to life. He exchanged his life for ours. You see, God saw us in our sin and in our rebellion, and he responded by pursuing us. Not just keeping us from death, but actually dying in our place for us, that we would have life. Dying in our place to bring us out of the death and destruction into life in Jesus. Jesus actually literally took our place. Even though he knew no sin, he became our sin and our rebellion and waywardness for us so that we would have life. He was bloodied and he was beaten. 
And every turn that we've ever made away from him, he has been relentless in coming after us. In laying down his life for us, calling us out of the darkness of our sin and into his light. Pursuing us, saying, come home. Come where you belong. Come where you are fully known and fully loved. Come into the space where I will work into you to love me, to love each other, and to love the place where I'm putting you. He covered our shame with his blood. And in him we are fully known and fully loved. We are forgiven and given new life. And what Jesus is working into us is to live in light of the reality of the beginning of the story that God made everything good. That he made us for relationship with him that was fully vulnerable and fully received and fully accepted to live in light of that reality of God's goodness again. If you're here this morning and you have these inklings inside of you of, of just the overwhelmingness of beauty and goodness that you see in everything and beauty and goodness that you even have in your relationships, that is there because God made everything good. That's why that is there. And at the same time, we all know that we are broken and bent as well too. And God has actually provided a way, not just by keeping us from death, but by actually dying for us. By giving his life for ours. So that we would know his goodness again. And all that is good that we experience in this life is a hint of God's goodness and creation. And a shadow of the new world to come in Jesus where you and I will fully know these words. That God saw everything that he had made. And it was very good. Fully and finally in Jesus, beloved. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray that you would make us the kinds of people that start where you start. That see your beauty and your goodness and your love in creation. We pray that it would be so overwhelming that we would want that kind of life. And we pray that you would work in us in such a way that we would see that that is only possible through Jesus. And that Jesus, you have laid down your life for us. You've covered our shame with your blood. You have brought us new life, and you promise us resurrection. God, you have woven the story of your goodness and creation. We have rebelled and been wayward toward you, but you have rescued us in Jesus, and we long for the day when he will come back and he will make all things new and restore us and restore all of creation. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. God wants us to leave here this morning knowing that his blessing is upon us, that his word is what defines us because our Christ is alive. And so this week, God wants for you and for me to be fruitful in everything, to pursue others the way that Christ has pursued us, to exercise stewardship in our work and in our relationships because it is true, the Lord will bless you and he will keep you. His smile is always upon you and his grace to you in Christ knows no end. 
And today and tomorrow and in 2020 and forever and ever and ever, his presence is with you and with me and Christ will make us whole. He will bring his peace. Let us go in that peace, beloved.